So um, I wonder if you've ever participated in or maybe even observed what's called a spelling bee. Do you know what I'm talking about? A spelling bee? Yeah. Um, We're going to do one right now. All right? How do you spell the word? It's not going to come up here. How do you spell the word? Because then it'd be spelled for you. Ready? How do you spell the word security? Or, before you, before you blur it out, how do you spell the word, different word, trust? How do you spell the word security? How do you spell the word trust? Before you blurt it out, I'm going to have a go. Okay? I'm going to have a go. You ready? I'm going to start with the first one. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell them both. C. O-V-E-N-A-N-T. Let me try that again. C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. I realize I, 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 realize I, I just spelled a completely different word, but covenant, friends, covenant is the essence of security and trust. Covenant is what this chapter in 1 Samuel is all about. Security and trust anchor themselves in a covenant. So you've already seen, it's a very dramatic story of two main characters. Of course, we have Saul the lunatic, but we have the two main characters in this passage. And did you notice that they have an exceptional friendship? Did you see that? Yeah. But look, The story, this story isn't about sentimentality or a bromance that these two blokes have. What we need to see is how God advances his mission, his kingdom through covenant. You with me? So what we're not to take away is, oh, I wish I had a friend like that and be a friend like that. Rather, we're to see how God, overarching all of the story, is advancing his kingdom, his mission. I mean, the friendship that these two blokes have is formalized in a covenant. Did you see that? The language that they use there? which is vital, think about this, it's vital for the transition from King Saul to King David. You with me? In other words, we need to see how God advances his kingdom through them, his kingdom through covenant. And the same applies today. God advances his kingdom through people who practice loyal love in their relationships. That's the big takeaway. God, in the same, t- in the same way, advances his kingdom through people who practice his loyal love in their relationships. God advances his kingdom through people who practice his loyal love in their relationships. That's going to be the big takeaway as we look at this wonderful, very dramatic passage in 1 Samuel 20. 
And may the Lord bless his word as we look to him in prayer now. Let's, let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray now that you would give us understanding of the meaning of these events for us. We thank you that what we read in the Bible is our own covenant history. So Lord, please help us to see and understand the faithfulness of your covenant and how it is in covenant love that we find life and forgiveness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So several weeks ago, we witnessed a man, a priest, actually, named Eli, and he had two wicked sons. Do you remember that? And what happened to his priesthood? It was rejected. You remember? I believe Eli sets the pattern for how one is to respond to divine rejection. What does Eli do? Gives in, he hangs it up. Doesn't discipline his boys, that's another story, but he, when it comes to the rejection of his priesthood, he, he hangs, hangs it up. Now, on the flip side of that, when we come to 1 Samuel 15, we see a king who's also been rejected, yet, yet he refuses to give in, and because he stubbornly refuses, to capitulate, it costs him dearly. What happens? He is alienated from his family and absolutely consumed with jealousy and rage so that all he can think about is how he might murder David. And that's what we saw last week. You remember? But even though he tries to kill David time and again in subtle ways and in very overt ways, what happens? The Spirit of God stops him, prevents him even overwhelms him and humbles him for it. We left off last week where Saul, sure, he might have got very close, as in like a stone's throw away from David. But all he can do is lay there in his birth cert, humiliated. Because God opposes the proud. And while at this moment the king is out of commission, David has a moment he has a chance to make a mad dash for it and seek out his best mate, Jonathan. You'll recall that Jonathan has been an effective mediator between Saul and David, and so perhaps he can pull that off again. That's where we pick up today. So as he comes before Jonathan, you can imagine David is probably out of breath, panting. You know, we sort of read it and we, we come in here and we're like, and then David fled from Ioth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, what have I done? But uh, imagine if someone's trying to kill you, and imagine if the prime minister was trying to kill you, seeking the SAS after you. That, that's, that's David. Yeah, I mean, would you be calm? Would you be like, what have I done? No. I've seen some of you get a flat tire and you, and you implode myself included, right? So imagine the prime minister has put your name most wanted list and is trying and has sent out SAS to kill you. Would you be unnerved? Yes. I wouldn't. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. 
So, so he comes before Jonathan, freaking out, panting, scared, probably peppering him with questions. And he's like, what have I done? Look, look here. Look what he says. What have I done? What is my guilt? Verse 1, And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? What is, was it something that I said? Was it something that I did? I mean, seriously, Jonathan, you're my best mate. Help me see. Is there something I'm blind to here? Is there a sin? Is there iniquity that I've committed against your dad? If so, I need to repair that. I mean, something needs to make sense to why this guy's a frantic lunatic trying to kill me. So maybe it's me. Maybe I've sinned. And Jonathan, well, Jonathan just doesn't see it that way. He's a bit blindsided by David running up to him because the last time he chatted with his dad, do you remember? His dad made him a promise. He said, David will surely not die. But we know what happens next, don't we? Right after he makes that promise, what do we see Saul doing? He loves a spear. He's chucking spears at David again. And he's sending out a death squad to kill him. But here's the deal. Jonathan didn't get the memo. Jonathan didn't hear that. Jonathan didn't see that. And so all he is banking off of, he's, he's believing the best about his dad. And he goes, there's no way. Look, if anyone, if anyone has an ear to what my dad is doing, don't you think it'd be me? If my dad wanted to kill you, don't you think I'd be the first person to know about it? And that's what he says in verse 2. He says, he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it, opening up my ear there to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So you see what he's saying? Jonathan is like, no, 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 no. There, there is no way. Uh, not, don't even think about such a thing, David. If there was a plot against you, I'd know about it. But he's, he's the trusting, loyal son, right? Maybe a bit naive, but, but nevertheless, he believes the best in his dad. And, and David won't have a bar of it, right? He, he just goes, no, nah, man, you, no. Verse 3, look what he says. Verse 3, but David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. I'm not, I'm not really impressed with your rose-colored glasses, my friend. Um, your dad knows that we're best mates, and he knows, look, he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So being the trusting and loyal son that he is, Jonathan thinks David is off base, but David knows better. He's under no illusions, the danger that he was in. He's experienced firsthand Saul's unpredictability and changes of mood, so he says, all right, I want to prove it to you. I'll prove it to you, Jonathan. And he comes up with a plan. He tells Jonathan to go to the new moon festival without him. And the way in which Saul reacts to his absence should reveal his attitude toward David. Make sense? So if David's not there and Jonathan explains why, let's see how he responds. Let's see how he reacts. A positive response would mean David is safe. But a hostile response would indicate that he's in danger. So I'll go. And when my dad says, where's Saul? How come his seat's empty? And if I say, well, he, 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 I let him take off to Bethlehem, he goes, oh yeah, no worries. Well, then you know that it's all good. But if he flares up, starts twitching a bit, 
you should run for the hills. Seems like a good way to test where Saul's at, right? But, but how, can David, how can David be sure? How could he really know? I mean, he's, he's completely relying on Jonathan. But not just Jonathan. There's one reason that he can be sure that this will happen. It's because of the covenant that they've made. In his distress, David sought safety in covenant promises. In his distress, he, he seeks safety only in covenant promises. Look what he says in verse 8. In verse 8, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Well, that's interesting. What covenant is he referring to? Well, flip back to chapter 18. Look at chapter 18, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a, you see the word there? Covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. There's that word, covenant, again. It's not a word we hear very often, do we? I mean, we have a church covenant. Praise God for that. But we don't, you don't hear the word covenant very often. A covenant is an agreement between two parties in which one or both make promises under oath or perform and refrain from certain actions. So like um, in, the, in the ancient Near East, covenants, this is not just a, a Jewish thing. There were treaties, that, there's ancient treaties that you can look at where, where one tribe says, well, we'll do this, and the other tribe comes to the agreement, you with me, and says, fine, we'll do that, and we make a covenant. And if we break the covenant, and they actually cut an animal open, they weren't animal rights activists back then, I'm sorry, but they cut an animal open, they say, you know what, if we break this covenant, that's like, it's going to be like this animal. We see this happening with Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Abraham. There's, there's covenants actually all throughout the Bible. So covenants, it involves firm promises and solemn commitments. That, that's a covenant between two parties. You may not hear the word covenant, but if you've been to a marriage, a true marriage between a man and a woman, according to how God and the scriptures define marriage, well, that's a covenant. Did you know that? That's all the way back to Genesis. That is a covenant that you make with your spouse for life as God is witness and as your fellow Christians or friends as witnesses as well. Now, come back to chapter 20, verse 8. I'm curious what your translation, I know we have different translations here. Um, some of you have the Eastern Suburbs version, like me. That's cool. You guys got it. You're from Sydney. Yeah, nice. Um, some of you have the NIV and all that stuff, but I'm curious what your translation says here. Because you notice what he says in the very beginning of verse 8, and you shall act with what? I'm curious what your translation says. Because the word there is chesed. It's fun to say, chesed. It's used 250 times in the Bible. The King James translated, if you have a King James, great translation, translates it uh, often in mercy, though it may not hear. Does anyone have a King James in here? Yeah? Does it say mercy? Kindly. Kindly. Very good, yeah. Uh, the RSV renders it steadfast love. The NASB uses the term loving kindness, typically, to describe chesed. 
Whatever your translation says, it carries ideas of love, compassion, affection, but the general flavor of it is loyalty, reliability, faithfulness. That's, that's chesed. So you understand, it's not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that's a, it's committed. That's what David is banking on as his world disintegrates. Do you understand? He appeals to Jonathan to treat him with chesed. That's the first point we're to take away here. Jonathan and David commit to showing loyal love to each other in the face of potential opposition and risk. Can you see that? And see how they commit to this? Let me show you what I mean. In verse 11, if you're there, as these boys are having a chin wag, the, the story is suddenly interrupted by Jonathan, suggesting that they go outside. And then Jonathan takes the initiative in the conversation. He does the talking. I think that's not just random, by the way. I think the author is flagging this for us in verse 11, that that's not just an, an, oh, a nice chain, change of scenery. Or let's just have a simple conversation. Uh, we're meant to see, in the next 10 verses here, friends, we're meant to see this covenantal language. You with me? Covenantal language, it's woven throughout these 10 verses. So as I read beyond the lookout for it here, look at verse 11. Notice how he mentions the Lord's name nine times. Nine times, just a few verses. Pick up with me in verse 11. And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Can you hear that? Be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David... Shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you. You see what he's saying? Here's the agreement. If I disclose it, if I'm being dodgy, remember how like, in the ancient Near East they would cut an animal open? And they say, if I break the covenant, may that happen to me. So Jonathan's saying, may this backfire on me if I'm going to be dodgy with you. But should it please my father to do harm, the Lord do so, verse 13, to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now notice this is really interesting here. Jonathan asks for safety, but he's not the one in danger. You with me? At least for the time being, if you're the king's son, you're in a pretty good spot, <laughs> right? Better than like Elon Musk's kids or something, right? Like, I mean, you're, you're, you're pretty, you're, you're set. And so watch what he does. He asks for safety. David's the one in danger, but Jonathan is able to look beyond the present circumstance and say, I know that you're the king. God has anointed you as the king. So when you take the throne, would you make a covenant promise with me that you won't destroy me or my kids? Look at verse 14. If I am still alive, show me 
the chesed, there it is, love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your chesed from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Do you see what he's saying there? In the ancient world, when there was a dynastic change, the practice was to completely slaughter any remaining family members of the previous king. You think our politics are bad today, right? But that was the way it was done. So Jonathan appeals to spare his life and the life of his kids. He asked David to show him loyal love to him and to his family. It's the kind of loyal love. So where's, da- where's Jonathan getting this idea? Where, is, he, is he just a poet, right? Did he just dream this up and this concoction in his head? No, he knows his Bible. It's, it's the kind of loyal love that God shows to his rebellious, stiff-necked, sinful people. This kind of loyal, faithful, committed love to his people. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love, you hear that word? The chesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is how, friends, this is how God interacts with his people. It is through covenant. It is through covenant. I I, honestly, I, I don't think this would be a stretch to say. I would actually maybe even die on this hill. So there you go. There's a dramatic statement. I don't think it would be a stretch to say, and if we had enough time, I could prove it to you, all your friends, and everyone you know, that biblical covenants form the backbone of the entire Bible. The biblical covenants form the backbone of the entire Bible. That's how we read the Bible, covenantally. That's how anyone, from Genesis to Revelation, that's how we're to understand the backbone structure is through this thing called covenant. That's how God interacts with his people. So, and it's here on the ground level. What are we seeing? Jonathan and David demonstrate covenant love to each other in the face of opposition and risk. I mean, Jonathan thinks the best of his dad, but come on. I mean, what is he doing here? I mean, th- th- this, is, this is tyranny, what he's doing. He's, 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 he's engaging with the enemy. He's colluding with the enemy, right? So this is a risk. But look at this language. Keep driving it back here to verse 16. And Jonathan cut a covenant. He made a covenant, verse 16, with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Remember what? Do you remember the language that Saul used of David last week? He is my, why did you let, what did he say to Jonathan's sister? Why did you let my enemy go? Very interesting. May he take vengeance on David. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. I hope you can see that this covenant love that they share is, is grounded in the scriptures. It would be quite silly to take away that this is some kind of homoerotic behavior, as some authors do. I don't see that happening at all in this text. 
This, this is a true commitment to God and to each other. And in the following scene, what do we see? Jonathan, he hatches up a plan. Basically, he says, David, you go and hide. I'll go to the new moon celebration. And again, let's see how my dad responds. But here's the deal. You go out in the hiding. If Here's going to be the sign between us. It has to be a bit covert here. I'll come out and I'll shoot arrows. If I shoot them to the side of you, like, you know, and here comes these arrows, you know it's all good. But if I shoot the arrows past you, you're, you're not safe. You're not safe. And so, in verse 24, come, let's, now we get to the new moon festival. This, this is, um, yeah, this, this is just very dramatic, and I, I love it. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, hmm, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Now, what's he referring to there? Well, he, that's actually a compliment to David. Uh, David knew his Old Testament, and if he was ceremonially unclean there, it would not be right for him to come to this particular event on the first day of new moon. You with me? So, so that's actually a compliment, even though he, he hates David. He's like, well, I know he's going to obey Torah. He's going to obey the law, right? Um, but then when the second day rolls around, he goes, nah, something's fishy here. Nah, this isn't, this isn't good. So, but on the second day, notice, how, notice the distance he has. He doesn't call him David. He doesn't even dress him by name. But on the second day, verse 27, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan's son, his son, why has, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal? either yesterday or today. Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So, that's his plan. Do you think the king's going to buy it? No. <laughs> I mean, let's just say he blows his lid and starts dropping foul-mouthed language on his son. If this was being shown on TV, it'd bleep, bleep, bleep. I mean, I kid you not. Look, look what he says here. You can read between the lines. This is, not a, this is not a compliment to his wife or to his son. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Wow. First, he throws guilt and shame at him. Can you see that? He, he, he throws Shame, like, how dare you? You've betrayed me. And he, and he throws all this guilt on him. And then when that doesn't work, he throws a spear at him. You see, because Jonathan has aligned himself with David, in Saul's eye, in Saul's mind, they're one of the same. 
So in a frenzy of exasperation, he, look at verse 33, what does he do? First Jonathan says, right? Then Jonathan answered Saul, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved. Why, is, why, why did he do it? Why did he eat no food? Why does he leave? It's not, it's, it didn't, it, he didn't leave the feast because of the way he was personally offended. Did you see this? Not because of the way he was personally treated, but because of his father's shameful treatment of David. So despite it all, despite all this hostility, Jonathan and David reaffirmed their loyalty to each other. Verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field at the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Now notice here, this is really interesting. He, he, he's going, this is according to plan. You remember, this, was, this, is what, this is what their idea was. But he has three commands. Can you see it there? He says, hurry, be quick. Look at verse 38, do not stay. Notice verse 38, and Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. I want you, it's an interesting scene. I wonder if the poor little boy, right? Hurry, hurry up. You know, this is the prince talking to him. Oh, he doesn't know what's going on. Obviously the boy knew nothing. Verse 39, only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, saying, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us. You hear this covenant language again? Isn't it interesting that when you take chapter 18, 19, and 20 and you put them together, you have a bracket of covenant commitment in the beginning of 18, and then now you have the other bracket of it, covenant commitment. In the middle, hostility. You with me? And look what he says here. He says, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. You know, sadly, this is one of the last times that they'll ever see each other. They see just briefly. Just briefly, they see each other. Nevertheless, David will live on to establish the kingdom because God advances his kingdom through people who practice his loyal love in their relationships. God advances his kingdom through people who practice his loyal love in their relationships. You know, friends, loyal love is remarkable because of some of the challenges it has to overcome. It, it takes loyal love to overcome family loyalties. Think of Jonathan. I mean, this is his own dad. And yet, he sees the bigger picture. Your loyal love to the people of this church may put you at odds, friend, with unbelieving family members who want you to embrace their cause and their lifestyle. You understand? Your commitment 
to Christ and to his church may put you at odds with a family member who doesn't know Christ because they have a system of belief. The Bible says that the man without the Spirit cannot accept the things of the Spirit because it's foolishness to him. I know, you know we'd like to be applauded for believing these things, but it's foolishness in the eyes of the world. So when you are clear about the gospel to a brother, to a sister, to a friend, it may just put you at odds with them. Not because, don't hear me, don't go out and be a contrarian jerk. You don't need to. The gospel is offensive. The gospel comes to someone and says, you have rejected God. You are separated from him because of sin. But there is hope in Christ. You can be forgiven and saved. Well, what does, a, what does an Aussie say? I'm not a bad person. I'm offended you'd say that. I'm a good person. And I grew up in church too, so I'm cool with that stuff. No. No, no, no. What, what, when the masses gathered around Jesus in Luke 14, he had this to say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's not saying, go hate your mom and dad, but your love for Christ must be so zealous that in comparison, it looks like hatred. You with me? See, it takes loyal love to overcome family loyalties. It takes loyal love to overcome family loyalties, which is quite difficult for those of you that are not Anglo as well. Unfortunately, Anglos, we're just way too autonomous, and that's just kind of who we are. I'm not being woke, it's just true. But often in other societies, other cultures, the family unit sort of trumps everything. You with me? So for those of you that, are in, come, that God has created you and you've been birthed in a different culture, man, it takes a loyal love to overcome those family loyalties. It's the only thing that you're going to overcome it. It takes loyal love also, friend, to overcome personal ambition. It takes loyal love to overcome personal ambition. Think about Jonathan. Don't you think you'd be tempted to kind of, sure, you've got this commitment with David, but I mean, after all, if you help this guy out and he becomes king, guess who doesn't? You, <laughs> right? Your loyal love to a person, friend, your loyal love to a person you mentor or to a friend in, in here, maybe in this church, may set them up to gain more recognition than you do or even take the position that you desired. You understand that? Your, your, your loyal, your commitment there may actually, you might be surprised that they end up in a position that you wanted. But lest we forget what Paul writes in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, who did that? Christ. It takes loyal love to overcome family loyalties. It takes loyal love to overcome personal ambition. It takes loyal love to overcome 
personal security and safety. I mean, again, think of David and the potential heirs to the throne here that Jonathan might have had. It would have been quite easy to go back on his commitment. But what do we see later in 2 Samuel? Jonathan's descendants, there's one that's crippled. Do you know the story? And you see this loyal covenant love displayed to him, grace upon grace. Your loyal love to recovering addicts, to an unstable family member, a person with baggage, brings with it the risk of criticism or unhealthy dependency or a major disruption in your life. But God advances his kingdom through people who practice his loyal love in their relationships. It's hard to live this. You know how easy it is for me to say this stuff? <laughs> I can just throw, I can just keep staying it. It's hard, though, to live this out, is it not? Especially in a culture which does not value loyal love, but worships individual autonomous rights. You deserve to be happy. Protect yourself at all costs. Look, I'll love you this far and this long, and then we'll see. And if I'm not happy, time to pull the plug. See, it's hard to live this out, but the gospel makes loyal love possible. Jesus' loyal love for us is what enables us to practice this kind of loyal love in our relationships with others. It's what Jesus said in John. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. <laughs> Guys, church, such a loyal love is what advances God's kingdom as it strengthens families and builds his church. God advances his kingdom through people who practice loyal love in their relationships. May the Lord do that in a special way in your life and particularly in this church as he strengthens families here and continues to advance his kingdom on the Central Coast and throughout Australia, starting with us turning to him our true covenant head and Lord and Savior, our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come again and praise you that we have a sure and steady covenant for those that have turned from sin and trusted in you alone. We know that you will never break covenant with your people. You will hold us fast to the end. Our worth is not in what we own. It's not in our strength. It's not in our flesh and bone, but at the costly wounds of love at the cross, Lord. So we rejoice in you, our Redeemer. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Friend, if you're here and you are a baptized believer...